Welcome to She Is Your Neighbor, a show where we discuss the realities and complexities of domestic violence. This podcast is brought to you by Women's Crisis Services of Waterloo Region, a charitable organization in Ontario, Canada. I'm your host, Jenna Main. Join me as we talk to different people each week to learn how domestic violence impacts people from all walks of life. She is your neighbor, and we all have a role to play in ending domestic violence. This week's episode is called Domestic Violence in the Media with Elizabeth Renzetti. Elizabeth is a journalist with the Globe and Mail, and she's also an author. She writes about feminism and issues impacting women, and she's covered domestic violence stories for many years. In this episode, Liz shares her experience with reporting on domestic violence. She talks about trauma-informed reporting and how the media can give a voice to survivors of domestic violence. I really admire Liz, and recording this episode was really exciting for me on a personal level. I first got connected with Liz about a year or two ago uh, when I reached out about a feature story that she wrote about domestic violence deaths, and we've been connected ever since. I, uh, I finally got to meet her in person when we did her photo shoot for this series, so I brought her book with me. Um, and I got her to sign a copy of it for me, and I even got to meet her cat. So uh, it was a pretty exciting experience for me. And I really hope you enjoy this episode just as much as I enjoyed speaking with Liz. Now, before we get started, I'd like to note that the following episode includes a discussion of domestic violence and abuse, which may be distressing or traumatic for some listeners. Please take care of yourself and don't hesitate to ask for help if you need it. I'd also like to thank our episode's sponsor, 570 News. Local reporters and journalists keeping you connected to your community 24-7 with the latest breaking news from where you live. Stay up to date with everything happening in your ever-changing universe with 570 News, Kitchener's local source for news, sports, and talk. Hi, Liz. Thanks again for joining me here today. I'm so happy to be here, Jenna. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to have you here. So today we're going to be talking a bit about reporting on domestic violence. And I was hoping you could just start by sharing a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am a journalist um, and an author. And I have been a journalist uh, since I was (laughs) 22, so it's been a long time. I work for the Globe and Mail. I write a column and I write feature stories for the Globe and Mail. And I've been lucky enough to report on, you know, from different parts of the world. I've lived in Berlin and Los Angeles and in London and in Toronto. So I've reported from all of those different places. Awesome. And I know you've written a couple books too. Yes, I wrote a novel and I wrote a book of essays. My book of essays is called Shrewd. Um, and it's kind of about my personal history as a feminist and my history of reporting on feminist issues. Yes, I've read it and I think it's a great book and I actually have a question about it too. In the first few pages of your book, Shrewd, there's a line that really stood out to me and you say, I have no creed in this world, no religion, no ideology except feminism. It's an essential part of my being. I'm wondering how this has influenced your work over the years as a journalist. Well, I think it's been central, actually, to my work as a journalist. And I've been lucky enough to be um, a columnist for many years. So columnists 
are allowed to have a position of opinion and advocacy. I think even other journalists, you know, we're starting to come to this uh, reckoning around advocacy and journalism that they're not, you know, things that are at loggerheads with each other. They can, in fact, inform each other. And you could be a very good journalist uh, and, you know, have some kind of advocacy role or thoughts, you know, in your head, especially if you're an opinion journalist, um, which is what I am. So, uh, yes, it's it, uh, informed my uh, writing, I would say, in, in all ways. Yes, I've read what you've written about women's issues, and I know you've written some opinion pieces during COVID as well about home not being safe for women uh, and things like that as well. But I know you've written about domestic violence in different ways, in your opinion pieces, in feature stories. You and I also spoke in the past, and I remember you referring to it as an issue that's cloaked in silence. And I'm wondering if you think that this has changed at all over the years. I think it has perhaps changed a little bit, but not nearly as much as it needs to. And when I say it's cloaked in silence, I think that that's um, true in a couple of ways. One is that women still feel shame. Um, they shouldn't, obviously, because, you know, if you're the victim of violence, you should not feel shame about the violence that's inflicted upon you. But we still have this kind of umbrella of shame around the whole issue. So it becomes silent in that way. You might feel that you can't speak out. You can't ask for help from your friends or your family. And then the other way it's been silenced is in this idea that it is just kind of an isolated incident that happens to people at home and it isn't a societal issue, a broad issue that is in fact tied to so many other issues of exploitation and dominance, which it is. So I think we fail to recognize that it is in fact the issue of intimate partner violence or domestic violence is not isolated incidents that um, crop up here and there, but is in fact all tied together with um, a reckoning that we've not yet done around issues of um, misogyny in our society, which are, you know, deeply, deeply rooted. I agree with that. And I think, in my view anyways, domestic violence is really tied to the patriarchy. And I think that's why feminism, there's such a role here to talk about that when we talk about domestic violence as well, because uh, in my view anyways, I, I'm not sure if there would be domestic violence if we didn't have the patriarchy. And I think some of those structures and systems that exist really perpetuate this and add to it. Exactly. If you have a, if you live in a society where, you know, certain people who, uh, and they could be, this could be for reasons of uh, sex, it could be for reasons of, you know, gender, it could be for reasons of race, it could be reasons of ability, are, but are these people are considered less human than other people and we also live in a society where um, people still feel that violence is a way to deal with their emotions then we're going to continue to have this problem one kind of good thing i think is i do think there's been increased awareness and increased conversations and even media coverage about domestic violence over the years and I know this year especially with COVID there's been more talk of it because people know home is not safe for everyone we've talked about violence increasing during the pandemic when people are stuck at home in these abusive situations 
But I thought that maybe there was a bit of a change even before the pandemic. Um, I remember CBC launched a new series called Stopping Domestic Violence, which I thought was really cool to see. And I thought maybe was showing a bit of a sign of things changing. But I'm curious your perspective. Do you think that media coverage has changed much when it comes to domestic violence? Yes, I do. And I think it's changed in a few ways. One is... um, It's changed in terms of language. We used to refer to, for example, to battered women, let's say. We used to also make the the onus was on the the woman. So, you know, a woman who was abused. Now we maybe put the onus on the abuser. So men who are violent towards women, that's one way. So the language is one way it's changed. I would say it's also changed in that we recognize or slowly, slowly are starting to recognize the myriad ways that violence manifests and so it's not always physical violence or not only physical violence it can be psychological violence it can be um, you know coercive control it can be financial control over another person it can happen in so many different ways we also recognize that there isn't a particular type of woman that this happens to it happens to young women it happens to older women it happens to people who are in dating relationships and uh, who are also who are married. Uh, So it's not like this monolithic one type of person it happens to. It happens to wealthy women and women of lesser means. So I think we're starting to understand it has so many different faces. And then I think in the third way it's changed is that there's so many new ways, uh, platforms and media for people to explore this. So for example, your podcast is a great example of this. There's podcasts and there's documentaries, there's online outlets that are looking into this. So it's not just the old traditional media uh, that you have to rely on. There's many places to get information and stories and to hear about the issue. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And something you said at the beginning there stuck with me too about the language changing too from talking about battered women to using words like domestic violence or intimate partner violence. To me, that signals a big change as well. And I know that's been happening over many, many years. But I do, in my opinion, I think it's kind of an important change because it's also, I think it empowers women a little bit more when we don't refer to women as battered women. Um, I think we are shifting the way we talk about it. And I do think language is really important. And I'm sure you do too, since this is, you are a writer and this is what you do. But I, I wonder if you could speak a little bit more too about how the language has changed and your thoughts on this. Yeah, I think it's really, really important because language is how we understand an issue. It is the, you know, the, the way that we absorb it into our systems. We're you know, creatures of our language. Uh, language is the full the fundamental part of our culture. So even look at something like um, the word femicide, which is starting to become more accepted. It's certainly accepted in um, uh, academic circles. And femicide is the killing of women or girls for gendered reasons, because they are women or girls. So um, a woman or a girl who was killed, let's say in a bank robbery or something, uh, or an explosion, that's not femicide, but if they're killed because they're the partner of someone or for because they're in a relationship with someone, um, we call that a femicide. And it has very different kinds of um, patterns than, than the way that men are killed. The way that women are killed has much different patterns. Like for example, women are much more likely to be killed by their partner and they're much more likely to be killed at home. 
So I think if we look at language that way, it can help us to understand the complexities and the nuances of an issue. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm glad you brought up femicide, actually, because I think that is an important word that is used now, and it's something we try to use if we're sharing a story on our social media channels about a, a domestic homicide. We will use the word femicide because, you know, I think using that and helping spread that awareness, it, it changes the way you think about what's happening, too, as you're saying. So I do think it's quite important. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad to see it's being taken up more and more. Um, sometimes you get a little pushback against it, as you always do when you're reporting on these issues. But the more you use a word, you know, language evolves and you use a word more and more and people slowly come to accept it. Yeah. And speaking of femicide, actually, I just did a podcast episode recently with Peter Jaffe, who I know you know Peter. I know you've connected with him, uh, at least for the story that you and Molly did on domestic violence deaths, but I'm sure for many other things as well. And we were talking about domestic homicide. And it's got me thinking, when you're reporting on domestic homicide or femicide, I'm wondering what the reaction has been like from the public to these types of stories. Often it's kind of shock, actually. I think because I'm reporting on it a lot, I... I I know what the numbers are and I know these things, but often you'll hear people say, oh, I had no idea that it was that many people or that we don't know the identities of this many people and they're quite surprised. The other thing is that people will reach out to you and say, this is happening to me, this is my story. Sometimes it's just because they want somebody to hear them, but sometimes it's because they want you know, maybe you to talk to talk to you for a story or because they feel that their story can help someone else. So that to me is the most interesting thing is when re women reach out to you afterwards and say, you know, I was worried for my own life before I got out of this situation. And, um, you know, you hear, I find you, you know, you hear that a lot. And it's, again, goes back to the whole cloak of silence thing is these are probably people who maybe didn't tell anyone or only, you know, it was known to just a few people in their, in their close circle. And then they read a story about how it's happening in the world. And it makes them either want to speak out publicly or at least tell one other person that this happened to them. And the, the story is quite widespread. The phenomenon is quite widespread. I think that's kind of a, a great implication of it is that at least people are reaching out and feeling that they can kind of lift that cloak of shame and stigma and talk about this now because I don't think that's been something we could always talk about. Something else Peter mentioned to me too is, you know, that not enough people are reading the reports that come out of the DVDRC, which is the Domestic Violence Death Review Committee, which Peter sits on and they write an annual report and they analyze all the deaths. And he said not enough people are reading the report and the recommendations. I'm wondering your thoughts on this. Have, have you found this too from what you've researched and wrote on? Yes. In fact, we're, we're embarking on a project right now sort of around this very thing, which is, so the death review committees, which happen in many provinces and territories across the country, make these recommendations. Not every um, panel sits every year, but when they do sit, they make recommendations. And then the re reports sit on the shelves. And... The recommendations often don't go anywhere and the recommendations are often very similar from you know report to report and they list these red flags that we could see 
um, that are behavioral warnings and they list ways that various agencies can work together to prevent you know es violence from escalating to the ultimate point which is a thing all everybody wants to prevent but it doesn't happen there and i'm sure peter told you this he's told me this that you know these uh, you know agencies that um are charged with trying to prevent violence often operate in silos like the police will operate in a silo and maybe children's services will operate in a silo and the crown will operate in a silo and the best practices don't get circulated between everybody and I think that's um, a huge problem and this is one of the things we're working on now is how can you kind of how can we relay that information better to the public is the public needs to know what to look for because I think people still have very outdated ideas about what domestic violence looks like and so if you know what to look for then you can possibly help you know a friend or a neighbor or family member who might be in danger. Yeah and you had mentioned before when you're writing these stories that the reaction from people is often shock too and they're so surprised by this but we do have reports and information and data about this and it is available but it's people aren't reading it and I don't think people are aware and to me it's really valuable information because I know it also kind of spells out people in different communities like what is the most likely way that children might end up being killed or indigenous women or women in rural areas. So there are really different risk factors too. That's very true. There are different risk factors. So like, I don't think anybody in the public is really going to go read a, a death review committee report. I wouldn't if I didn't report on it. So what has to happen is there has to be a, a, like a public health approach to this in the same way that we approach like the pandemic. We have to say, here's the information. Here's how we prevent things happening. We know what the preventative models are. How do we communicate that to the public? Like what's the best communication strategy for letting people know how to be safe and how to keep their neighbors safe? And so I think that's maybe a little bit where things are falling down is that we haven't been particularly good at, at, at taking that message and passing it on to the public. Yeah, that makes sense. And trying to break it down in a way that they can absorb as well. Yeah, exactly. So from women reaching out to you when reading these kinds of stories and wanting to connect with you, is there any stories that have kind of stuck out in your mind that you'd be willing to share a bit about? Um, I remember, you know, a few years ago interviewing um, a woman named Phyllis Pascal, who now has a, I think she does a kind of a Facebook, I don't know what you'd call it, like a Facebook forum and talks about uh, these issues. And she was almost killed by her partner and very you know had a very l lucky escape and had decided in the way that many women do interestingly to take her own trauma and pain and turn it into like lessons for other women and for the community and um, just a couple of years ago she received a, an award for the Red Door Shelter for her work so I think this is one way that some people, not everyone, you know, everyone promise, uh, processes trauma differently. But for some women who have been through this, some probably just don't want to think anything more about it. Uh, and then some want to become advocates and speak out and try to 
um, prevent it from uh, happening to other people. And that's a way of processing their pain too and dealing with it. So Phyllis, I thought was, she was super inspiring to me. And um, I, I, I was really moved and inspired by, by her story. Oh, I bet. Oh yeah. I'm sure you read a lot or write, sorry, a lot of stories like this where it is really inspiring. And I, I know you have spoken to so many inspiring women over the years and not just women who've experienced domestic violence as well. But I'm also wondering, what's it like for you reporting on these kinds of tough issues? Is it, it, I assume it would be difficult, but is it difficult? What's it, what's it like? Yeah, it's difficult. You kind of have to um, decompress a little bit after you, um, because journalists aren't trained, and we can talk about trauma-informed reporting, but journalists are not trained to be therapists. We're not trained to be, really not trained at all, frankly. We're really, like, you don't get a lot of training. You just land on the job, and if you can use a telephone, you're and you can do some research, so you're, those are your skills, right? Like, so nobody ever even, like the interviewing process is um, even not something that you are really taught to do particularly in depth and that you just learn on the job. And one part of that, and this is changing, thank God. So for younger journalists, they do learn and they know about, for example, trauma-informed reporting. And it would be very remiss of you if you went into situations with people who had been traumatized, whether they're in a war zone or whether they've experienced physical violence or emotional violence or whatever, if you did not uh, take this particular uh, tack with them. And what it involves, essentially, is recognizing that the person is more important than the story. The person you're interviewing is of paramount, and their mental health is of paramount importance. You have to recognize that uh, people who have been traumatized speak differently than, um, especially when they're speaking about their trauma, than maybe somebody else you'd be interviewing. Like you interview a politician, and they'll give you a little soundbite. If you're interviewing somebody who's been traumatized and they're speaking about that experience. They often speak in circles, like, and it goes, um, they go, they circle around the issue. So it takes a long time. You have to let them just do that. You have to not push them. You have to understand it's going to take a lot longer. You have to check in with them to make sure that they're feeling okay. And you have to, at the beginning of the process, explain to them um, what the consequences might be of this for them. Like, being interviewed might bringing things back up for you when it's published or broadcast you might get people talking to you about it you you know this is going to be public and you have to just uh, take the care of that person very seriously before you begin the process of, of interviewing them yeah that makes a lot of sense but unfortunately you said not everyone gets training in trauma-informed reporting. How would that work? Is that if someone is a crime reporter or if they are working on a certain type of story that they would look more into this or? Yeah, I would think so. They're also, also your outlet might offer you um, like workshops in this. They might say, we're doing this workshop and in trauma-informed reporting. You know, you, do you want to take part in it so you can learn about it? There's also tons of really good research and uh, resources on the internet and that's, Mainly, I read about things 
Um, and that's, and then you also, um, you know, in your little team at work between you and, you know, whatever other reporters you're working with and your editor, um, your data person, you might all get together, like at this project we're working on now, we're going to get together and uh, talk about what questions we, and how we're going to phrase those questions, because you again have to be quite careful in the phrasing, more careful than you would be with somebody who was just in a, like you're interviewing about their book or whatever. You have to be more careful in how you phrase the questions, like careful not to imply blame or anything like that with the people you're talking about. So there's a whole bunch of different ways you can, within your organization, um, come to be a better interviewer in these situations. If you're a freelancer, unfortunately, you're kind of on your own. But as again, as I say, there's all kinds of um, information online to uh, teach you how these techniques can make you a better reporter. And it seems like things are coming a long way. There are more stories about it. People are talking about this. These are conversations we're having. So to me, that's a great thing. And it's a step in the right direction. It also makes me think about, you know, the Me Too movement, for example. And I think the Me Too movement really changed the way we thought about sexual assault and workplace harassment and wrote about it and spoke about it. But I don't know if domestic violence has really had the same moment in the same way. And I'm wondering your thoughts on this. Do you think COVID is that moment or Mm. what do you think? I'm not sure COVID will be that moment. And I think it's because family violence is already um, a thing that happens behind walls, right? It does... usually does not happen out in public and COVID has made that that much worse like women who as you know better than anybody women who are seeking help um, many of them are finding it difficult because they might be trapped with their abuser it might be hard for them to get out of that situation even to ask for help it might be hard for them to take their kids and find a new place to live because it's really hard to move um, during these times so I, on one hand, it's been good for um, kind of public knowledge in that there have been lots of stories about this and about how we think that rates of violence and severity of violence are probably rising but don't have like excellent data on it yet. So we, we're getting those stories, but I think we also, so much of it is happening behind the scenes that we don't know about. But I do hope that there is... I mean, a moment, I don't know that there's going to be kind of an aha moment that there was like with Me Too, because it's not going to be about, you know, famous men getting fired or whatever. You know, periodically what we see is athletes who are accused of domestic violence. Those are the high profile cases we read about, or maybe somebody like Marilyn Manson or something accused of things like that. When it happens with athletes, for example, I'm always heartened to see professional sports leagues have implemented pretty strong policies around this and don't tolerate a lot of it. You do sometimes see somebody who's accused of a crime or an abusive situation being transferred to another team or something, but they do in general seem to take it pretty seriously, which I'm happy to see. So will there be a huge aha moment I'm not sure. I think it might just be more like slow, incremental change for the better, I'm hoping. (laughs) 
Yeah, no, I see what you mean. I think it's a totally different issue uh, in some ways, even though domestic violence includes sexual assault yeah. um, in some instances. it's. I think it is just so different because it is behind closed doors. It's with someone you're often in a really personal relationship with, an intimate relationship with. And it, it's really, really complex. I understand how you say there might never be a moment, um, at least not in the same way anyways. Yeah. Not in the same way, because often, usually it's not, uh, you know, a workplace issue, except in the sense that, you know, your trauma carries over into the workplace. Um, and there have been provincial governments who have offered, you know, time off for uh, people who are experiencing DV, which is, I think, great. Um, but because it's not a workplace issue, uh, it can't really get reported on in the same way so and it doesn't become public in the same way that it does at a company for example so um, yeah we're it'll be interesting to see how we do get more and more stories and in what form they appear yeah something I will say is we've noticed our, our organization anyways especially over the past year there has been more companies reaching out looking for workplace trainings on domestic violence from our outreach workers which has been really great to see that companies are taking an interest in this and wanting to educate their staff and employees about what to look for what to do if you're in a situation like this because I think a lot of people just don't know they don't really understand domestic violence and I think there is to me, it seems like people do want to understand it better, but it is complex. And what is the role of the workplace? And I think it, it's a bit confusing, too. It's interesting you say that. And I find that really heartening because a couple of years ago, I did a story with, uh, you know, the Association of Women's Shelters in Canada. And they were saying they were having they always had trouble fundraising on a corporate level because big corporations just did not want to be associated with intimate partner violence. Like they just cancer was fine, you know, like asthma is fine, whatever other drunk driving, but they just did not want their corporate image tied to domestic violence. And I found that so interesting. And, um, and also most executives are men in this country still and CEOs are men. And so at that level, they weren't, the men were not throwing their weight behind good projects like this, like around, you know, raising money for shelters. I'm hoping that's changing. It sounds like maybe it is a little bit with from what you say. Yeah, I think we're seeing it change, but I can, I can see how it would be different. And I think when, when you're trying to raise awareness about an issue like this, it, it certainly is different than talking about cancer or asthma or a different type of cause. It's uh, very sensitive and the way you phrase it, um, I think is important and it's, it's difficult to sometimes talk about. So I can see why companies would have that reaction, but I do also hope it's changing. And I think we are seeing good signs of that with companies reaching out for these kinds of training. So that's definitely a, a good thing, I think. Yeah, I do too. I'm also wondering, Liz, why this conversation is important to you? Well, because I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a pacifist. I, I, I believe in you know justice, and I believe that nobody should live in fear of another human being. I grew up in a house where there was violence, and to me, uh, that trauma, uh, you know, lives on generation after generation. It can be live on in the people who perpetrate the violence. It can live on in the people who experience the violence, who internalize it, and so it's not like this happens, uh, you know, in a 
quick period when you're a child or when you're older and then it's over. It's something you carry with you your entire life. And I think that if we don't understand that, then we fail to understand the repercussions of how this affects so many people. And the other thing is, it is so many people. We really have no idea how many people experience this kind of violence. Because it is underreported, because it is under this cloak of silence, we only have, and I'd be interested to hear what you think about that, because my understanding is we really only have, you know, we only see the little tiny top of the iceberg and we don't understand the whole extent of the problem. So this is something that affects uh, people all across society and um, something we should all be, you know, concerned about because all human beings should be allowed to live without the threat of violence, emotional, psychological, physical, sexual violence. We should all be um, walk through life knowing that we're never going to have to experience that. I really agree with that. And I think you're right. I think we only have hit the tip of the iceberg. And uh, I'm always fine too. the more conversations I have with people, the more people who don't even realize they know someone who's experienced domestic violence or any type of violence, or they themselves have experienced it and they wouldn't classify it as that because yeah. they didn't realize that emotional abuse exists, psychological, financial abuse. There's so many different types. And I think there's so many people out there um, who've had bad relationships and you might know someone or you might be someone who's had a bad relationship, but you didn't see it as domestic violence at the time. And I'm always interested as I talk to people and I think people, as they learn more, we realize more and more how many people have gone through this. And I think what you're saying there is really important and interesting because the idea that we don't recognize what violence is, you know, it's not always going to be somebody is coming up to you and has a bruise. It might be somebody who does not have control over her bank account. It might be somebody whose phone has a tracker on it. And it might be a young woman. And we unfortunately kind of mythologize in popular culture this slightly gross idea that romantic love means somebody you know pursuing you endlessly and that love means they are obsessed with you and that they you know they care about you so much and they can't live with you and so popular culture actually has a lot to answer for because those are actually the traits of an abuser often um, somebody who does not take no for an answer, somebody who wants to control your life, somebody who does not understand that, you know, your personhood exists apart from them. I, so I think we have to teach our daughters and our sons to be very wary about those messages. I agree. And going on with that, do you mind expanding on, you know, this project, it's all about she is your neighbor, domestic violence happens to more people than we think. Um, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how we can encourage others to be good neighbors and how we ourselves can be good neighbors to those experiencing this. Well, I think that some of what we've been talking about, I think is hugely important. And that is to update your idea about what domestic violence looks like. And again, it might incorporate physical violence, um, which leaves marks, but it might not. The person you are worried about might be experiencing um, coercive control, might be being uh, controlled by their partner, separated from their family and friends, um, their, their money controlled, 
they might be being cyber stalked. Um, they might their computer might be being their messages being read. Um, there are so many different ways. Uh, they might be being psychologically belittled, screamed at. Psychological abuse is as bad as physical abuse. So what you can do is look for those signs. Does this person seem frightened? Do they seem intimidated when they're around their partner? Do they say things like, oh, I don't have a credit card or, oh, you know, my partner is tracking where I am on my phone. So you have to be able to look out for those things. And then just, I think, be receptive. Say to this person, I notice you feel you look a little scared or you, you do you want to talk about anything? Understand that they might not want to talk right that minute but that they might want to talk later. So just constantly be receptive. I'm not saying badger them, but just say, you know, I'm always open to a talk. I'm always here for you. And then, you know, read up yourself on what the various kinds of uh, abuse are and understand that it happens in so many different forms. Like we're saying with younger women in same sex relationships, it's not always going to be like a married couple with children living in a house. Like it can happen in dating relationships. So I think just kind of make yourself aware of what it is you're looking for and then just be a good neighbor or friend and say, I'm here for you and I can help you. I can help you find help um, if you need it. And you know, you have an ally. I think that's so important. I think the more we all educate ourselves on what domestic violence is and then we're actually willing to have these conversations about it because it's not something we all want to talk about or feel comfortable talking about. I really do think that'll go a long way. And I know because I've talked to women who have stayed in our shelters and I'll talk to them after they leave and interview them about their experience. And so many of them too will say, I didn't know I was in an abusive relationship. And it's it shows me that we have so much prevention work ahead of us um, so that we can try and break this because people don't always know what it looks like domestic violence. And I think that's a good point. You might not even know yourself because you've been conditioned to be dehumanized, to feel like less than human less than equal, oh, maybe I'm asking for this, maybe I deserve it. These are all things that objectively we know are ridiculous, but if you are a person who's been beaten down your whole life, you might be more receptive to that kind of message and that kind of um, open to that kind of relationship with an abuser. And so we have to teach everybody, girls and boys from the very beginning, about bodily autonomy and about how they have no right to be anything less than kind to everyone around them. Yeah, I think so too. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Liz. I really appreciate it. It was so great to talk with you. It was great to talk to you too, Jenna. Thank you so much for the very interesting, enlightening conversation. That wraps up this week's show, but the conversation is far from over. We want to hear what you think. Use the hashtag SheIsYourNeighbor on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and join in the conversation. We all have a role to play in ending domestic violence.